This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with film director Janine Hosking. Janine joined me to talk about her latest documentary, The Eulogy. The Eulogy is about the life and untimely death of one of the greatest pianists in the world, Australian Geoffrey Tozer. And Geoffrey Tozer is the subject of the documentary The Eulogy, which we are going to discuss now with the director Janine Hosking. And Janine has been involved in a number of films and um, I think... She was uh, a producer of a film that I spoke about a year ago or so, which was called Dying to Live as well. And Janine um, has also edited this film. She's um, a writing credit on this film. Uh, She's also, of course, the director of it. So she um, has been with this film quite intimately and and created it and followed the story. And it is quite an amazing story to look at the life and untimely death of Geoffrey Tozer, who was an Australian pianist and a true musician. And I'm really glad to welcome now on the phone, Janine Hosking. Hi there, Janine. Hi, Amy. Thanks so much for joining us and congratulations on what is a really compelling and moving film. Oh, thank you. And and thank you for um, having this opportunity to talk about uh, Jeffrey Toza's career. I really appreciate it. Oh, I feel like it's a privilege to get to talk about it. And um, watching the film and the archival interviews with Jeffrey at different points in his life, what struck me is just how sensitive and intelligent and um, moving and moved he is by music and just how much of a true artist he was. And a number of people, as you've um, shown in this film, bandied about the, the term prodigy because he really did show promise almost from birth. Um, and I'm really, I'd love to share that kind of wonder with the listeners um, now about what made Jeffrey Tozer in particular so special starting from a very early age. Yeah, it's a really, really wondrous story in terms of his natural um, gifts that he was born with. Um, in fact, we have a photograph that's um, in the film of him with his nappy on, um, with his mother putting his hands on the on the keyboard. Um, she was a gifted pianist as well, Veronica Toza, and so and she also taught music. So he was hearing classical music when he was in the cot, if you like, um, in her tummy too. So by the time um, she taught, she she tells a story about, um, uh, and she's written it down in a diary, that um, he's showing immense talent, I think, as early as three. Um, And then he, um, under her guidance, is discovered later on and and plays live, I think, at the age of eight in Melbourne. So um, clearly that talent was innate within him. Indeed, and uh, in the eulogy that Paul Keating, Australia's former Prime Minister, delivers, he does highlight that kind of early promise that Geoffrey showed and he said that his earliest memory of the piano was when, as a three-year-old, he began to play Beethoven's Appassionata Sonata, music he had just heard his mother teaching to a pupil. I mean, that's probably the textbook definition of a prodigy, isn't it? I, I think so, and I, I think certainly the early years, and in fact, I guess right through his life until her death, um, she was an integral part of his career. 
um, and that you can't look at the genius of Jeffrey Tozer without really looking at what his mother contributed, um, during, particularly during the child prodigy years. And as an adult, she was a supportive person, but she was a force of nature. And um, Richard Gill, the music educator that takes us through the story in the documentary, did at times question her methods, um, which we, we go into in the, in the film. So there was very much a hot housing environment, I think, of Geoffrey Tozer as a child at the piano, but you could also argue that he had that natural gift. And she, um, in her writings, talks about that he, he was naturally drawn to the piano. And his, I mean, he was growing up in a time where I guess parenting at that time was a little bit different and what was probably accepted or acceptable might have been a little bit different to the way that parents in Australia nowadays, some, maybe not all, uh, might approach the gifts of their children. Um, But it it is quite a unique situation to find yourself in, to have a, a concert pianist for a mother who um, you know is teaching students in the Himalayas, and um, and then you're hearing these songs for the first time, and start composing your own songs as well at at a young age. In terms of Jeffrey and his passion for the piano, it does seem like um, although he was supported and encouraged, and in some ways pushed by his mother or or kind of encouraged he certainly had this kind of connection spiritual connection to to music which does seem to come through throughout his life and obviously you probably couldn't spend more than eight hours a day every day practicing if you didn't have a personal passion for the music as well what do you think drove that passion and particularly his passion to bring to life some of the composers that we really haven't heard of or that hadn't at the time even been recorded using modern recording techniques? I I think um, you summed it up really well, but I I think it's this innate thing within him. You can't separate Geoffrey Tozer from the music and the passion that was there for the music. Um, It's just a part of him. I don't think he ever questioned um, it. Uh, There is a... I think there's a, a section in his diary where he says um, he's, he's frightened of the piano. And in the teenage years, there was a lot of pressure on him, whether it was pressure he put on himself or from others' expectations that this genius that you see in childhood would would also go through smoothly into adulthood because sometimes it doesn't. Um, in Jeffrey's case, it did. But I think in the teenage years, he was starting to question what he was doing um, and second-guessing his own talent. So there was a very rough period there where I think he says, you know, I, I, hate, the, I hate the piano. But later on, he picks it up again. But I just think it was just a part of him, an absolute part of him. Um, and... Therefore, I, and he's always driven, I think, by exploring the complexities of, of classical music and introducing it to audiences that were um, perhaps not aware of classical music, hadn't heard much of it before. Um, there's some wonderful stories, actually, of Geoffrey going to regional areas throughout Australia and playing um, recitals, solo recitals, trying to spread the message of, of the music. But, yes, it seems like he was drawn to the more obscure pieces later on. Maybe that was because as a child he was playing all the main classical pieces that we know and love and to stretch himself he was exploring some more even more complex pieces like the Metna which we explore in the documentary. Indeed listening to the Metna I can understand why some people didn't attempt it because it seems like it would reveal your flaws if you couldn't couldn't actually do it. Mm, Yes and 
back when um, Geoffrey Tozer recorded recorded it with the London Philharmonic, from what we're told, he played it in real time from beginning to end. It's a half hour. I think it runs for 30 minutes, this concerto. So he played it in one go right wow. through. So nowadays, of course, you can, you know, you can edit and do it in, and record it in sections. Um, but he apparently did it in one go. Um, and apparently the orchestra was just uh, gobsmacked that he was able to do that. And he received his sheet music um, from Russia and was sent out to Australia, I think, uh, maybe a month, about three weeks before he had to do the recording in London. It obviously was aware of it and had heard the Metna before, so I'm not saying he didn't wasn't aware of it, but to actually see it written down, the notes on the page, he saw that for the first time, I think, about three weeks out from recording it. Gosh, <laughs> it's really amazing. Everything that he's done is amazing. In the film, you talk about these kind of major milestones in his childhood and then teenage years, and they would stun a lot of people that he achieved them at all, let alone at a young age, such Mm. as um, at age eight in 1963, he played Bach's concerto in F minor with the Victorian Symphony Orchestra, which is now known as the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Mm. In 1968, at age 13, he was the youngest recipient ever of the Winston Churchill Fellowship, um, which enabled him to head off to London. He then had got a second Winston Churchill Fellowship in his teenage Mm. years. He made his debut at Royal Albert Hall with the BBC Symphony Orchestra in 1970 at age 15. I mean, these are kind of major things that a pianist could only dream about in their adulthood, let alone their teenage years. Yes, and um, you would have seen, Amy, the archival footage that's... um in the film where um, we actually, what, it, what a precious piece of music was missing is when he does perform the Bach concerto um, in the Melbourne Town Hall and it's just missing from the ABC archive. Um, it was recorded um, and it's, it's just gone, so that, that's oh, a shame. No. But the, the audio recording is there. Um, but, yeah, it's an amazing set of achievements and yet so many few Australians know about him. Yeah, that's what's really shocking, isn't it? And... When we get to his time in Canberra as a music teacher in 1986, this is kind of a really important moment in his life for his meeting Paul Keating um, and Paul Keating meeting him because as one of his school friends, Jeffrey's school friends, says in your film, they said, I do believe that he gave Keating culture. And um, yes. Paul Keating might dispute that, but <laughs> I was really impressed that there was, a, there was an exchange between them. I, I think the thing with uh, Paul Keating at that time when he meets or hears Geoffrey Tozer for the first time, he was the treasurer then um, and he was going to a school concert um, where his son Patrick attended that school and he hears this um, person playing the piano and he thinks, my goodness, that's amazing talent. Why would they be a music teacher? At that point, Geoffrey Tozer was a part-time music teacher. He was playing... Um, uh, were concertos and recitals overseas, but he was, I think he was earning about $9,000 a year. Um, so it was very much he couldn't concentrate full time on his art because he obviously had to make a living and that was as a school teacher. So it's at this point in time when Keating has quite a bit of power that he listens and hears 
Jeffrey Tozer, they had a conversation later. Um, Tozer explains the situation of where his career is at. Um, and that's when uh, Keating has this amazing inspirational idea to not only bring about what becomes known as the Keating Creative Fellowships, which were very much inspired by Jeffrey Tozer's circumstances. It was for midlife career artists. Um, that were having trouble uh, perfecting their art and, and, and for, you know, spending time on their art because they had to have jobs, um, other jobs that weren't their main stream in life and that's thus the, the Creative Fellowships were born. But not only that, Keating also decided to step up and um, I guess in a way manage, if you like, for a short period of time, if not officially a manager, he negotiated the deal with Chandos Records in London for, for Jeffrey Tozer um, to to record with Chandos, and that breathed new life into Jeffrey's career. Indeed, he actually travelled all the way to Colchester, which anyone who mm. knows England, Colchester is not that famous, and it's a little bit far out. And uh, mm. yeah, it was interesting to see just how much Paul Keating believed in the talent of Jeffrey Tozer and was motivated to kind of correct. A wrong, I think, which is that he just wasn't, he was being underutilised. Mm. And I think, um, I think there was that thing about I'm, I'm going to get him a, a good deal and I want the world to know about this. But he really, mm. really believed um, in his talent, which, um, you know, if you've got someone in your life that believes in you, um, that must have been incredible for Jeffrey because it enabled him then to produce, I think there was over 32 recordings that he does with Chandos that at the time were the, were the top um, classical music recording label. Um, an incredible achievement and to be able to record with the London Philharmonic, for example, um, was that would not have happened without um, Keating's support. And I'm interested in his relationship with orchestras. In the film, you talk about the fact that Tozer was playing with Australia's major orchestras, the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra and the Sydney Symphony Orchestra in 1982. Um, and you show some kind of concert programs that had him involved. And then, of course, when he was rec- making those recordings, he also was recording with one of the top orchestras in the world, the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Mm-hmm. He then, even in the 1990s, travelled to China and played with top orchestras over in China. And that beautiful Yellow River Concerto is amazing um, mm-hmm. to watch. I am interested in this idea of him as a pianist connecting with an orchestra, which you also highlight through his interviews, and the fact that he was known for a certain level of improvisation in in elements of his playing and that that is not an uncommon thing, um, I guess, as a soloist. Many soloists kind of add their own flourish to certain pieces. Mm. But what's interesting to me and what seems like the crux of the film is that the reason why a number of managing directors and artistic directors of the Australian symphony orchestras, the reason why they said they didn't utilise Geoffrey enough or as much as others would have hoped is because they didn't think he could play nice I guess with an orchestra or go along with whatever was the the agreed plan in a rehearsal and it seems to me like that at least could not necessarily be the whole picture given that he played with so many world-renowned orchestras and that no doubt there are a number of musical soloists who also kind of had a similar approach to Jeffrey what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I, th- I think it's quite complex. Um, I mean, I never actually saw him or heard him play live, I, you know. And so it depends who you talk to, you know, who you want to believe. Certainly it was Keating's um, view and expressed it in the eulogy, which the, the film um, is inspired by Keating's eulogy in which he lays the blame to the orchestras for the downfall of Toza's career, that Toza wasn't getting um, work here in Australia. Um, some people aligned that with the fact that as soon as Keating is out of power, um, the fellowship stopped and the arts community turned their back on um, Jeffrey Toza. So that's one view. The other view is that some people claim that he improvised too much. Others said that great artists like Mozart would would improvise. Mm. Um, it's the hallmark of a genius. Um, and certainly, yes, he was playing... Um, I think that that footage is amazing of the Yellow River Concerto, which is playing in China, which was televised to 80 million people. Um, so Richard Gill really sort of drills down on this sort of thing to go, well, was Jeffrey Toza questions, was he um, the victim of a tall poppy syndrome? You know, was he, I think he says to the conservatorium students, um, you know, was, was Jeffrey just too good? you know, for the orchestra. So these very provocative statements um, are there. I don't actually have the definitive answer for you, um, but I I think what we did try to do was, um, as well as seeing Keating's perspective, was to actually look at, well, well, what were they saying? What was the reason that we'd have such a talented person um, simply go? And then I think as the story progresses along, um, the answers become more and more complex. Indeed. You mentioned Mozart. Pretty much every composer, I think, was of a kind of similar level in their kind of genius and ability to change things and and kind of evolve a piece as they played. Uh, I'm really interested in the eulogy, which, of course, is the inspiration, as you say, for the film. And at the time that Paul Keating delivered this eulogy, um, it was published in newspapers around Australia, so it certainly did really make the news at the time. And I'm not really surprised, given that every time Paul Keating says something pointed or or passionate that people do take notice of what he says. Um, But what was interesting to me in in Paul Keating's book afterwards was that it said that Geoffrey Tozer directed his executor that the only person who he wanted to give the eulogy at his funeral was Paul Keating. So I was really interested in that element that that Geoffrey Tozer really thought that Paul Keating was the person to understand and deliver the message of his life. And I do want to just read out that really important quote so people can understand the kind of passion that um, was behind this piece and why it probably got people either angry or impassioned themselves. So this is one of the quotes from Paul Keating. He said, but for all of that, he could not make the cut with the latter-day Melbourne and Sydney Symphony Orchestras. Their indifference and contempt towards him left him to moulder away, largely playing to himself in a rented suburban Melbourne house. The people who chose repertoire for those two orchestras and who had charge in the selection of artists during this period should hang their heads in shame at their neglect of him. If anyone needs a case example of the bit and preference within the Australian arts, here you have it. Well, that's kind of not surprisingly why people got a little bit up and about. Um, (laughs) And you talked to a number of those people and also one of the journalists who covered the back and forth of that time. In terms of your 
recollection of that moment and the eulogy and its kind of moment in the press and the news. What mm. captured you when you heard it and or read it and heard that story around the eulogy and why Keating was delivering it? Well, um, I was actually given a copy of the eulogy to read by a friend who said, don't you think there's more to this story? Um, and I read Paul Keating's eulogy. I actually was unaware of it when it came out, to my shame. Um, so I read it and I thought, well, wow, this is searing. I mean, uh, you've read one of the more provocative graphs, but I think mm. the whole eulogy is is a call to arms, really, um, within the arts community. So, um, And it's very sad and it's searing and it's dramatic and you're thinking, my goodness, is this what happened? Um, and But the way forward to find out actually what happened um, beyond a eulogy at a memorial was to go to the Tozer estate where we were very lucky um, to discover... Um, diaries and letters that had been written by Geoffrey Tozer and his mother, Veronica. They're both very prolific in writing down events daily, some mundane things and other big moments. And so we were able to get a sense of Tozer's career and what was going on into the background of his life through his own words. And I think that was really very reassuring um, to us that, um, you know, lots of people have different opinions and um, I, I in particular and the, the other producers, um, Katie Grusev and Trish Lake, we, we wanted to make sure that the truth was out there and the only way perhaps you can get the truth, even though it's subjective from Jeffrey's point of view as well, was to keep going back to the archive um, to back up some of the claims that were being made. And I, I think then you're finding revelations that actually the music establishment was saying later in his career, certainly not earlier on, that Tozer was having problems with alcohol. It certainly backed up in the, in the diary. Um, and so it was never our intention to go, oh, okay, this is the eulogy. Um, let's make a hagiography of Jeffrey. I really felt as much as celebrating his talent, we also had to look at, what was the reason that he's not alive today? What was the reason that he couldn't flourish in this country? Um, and it's very complex. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are interested in this idea of the creative genius who um, struggles because they aren't like everyone else necessarily. Mm -hmm. They are in some ways, but really they're not in, in the most important way, which is whatever it is that they're so good at um, mm -hmm. and that they can often struggle. And if they don't have that support, and as you show in the film, his mother passed away and then within another year his manager passed away, mm -hmm. this is something which many people would struggle with and then this is a person who left school at 13 um, and yet is highly articulate and intelligent and yeah and and perhaps found it harder to relate to to people if the, their main kind of vocation was playing the piano all day every day um, yeah. so I'm interested in how someone um, could have then then those issues and it could be expressed through or, or alcohol could be used as a coping mechanism. Um, in terms of the film and your looking at his letters and when alcohol became an issue, was that towards the last or the latter part of his life? I think he's seeing actually earlier on in you know later teenage years is is experimenting with alcohol as everybody does. I don't think it was impacting so much on his 
performances. Um, I think he had, this is from hearing from his friends and colleagues, a great capacity for alcohol, really. Um, he could drink a lot and still go out and perform really remarkably well. But I think you might see the downward spiral occur after the Creative Fellowships are over. Um, he completes a few more recordings for Chandos as part of the original um, recording deal that Keating um, got for him and uh, uh, negotiated for him. And when that's over, you're sort of seeing then he's sort of reliant back on Australia again. He's no longer going overseas to record um, with these great orchestras. He's in Australia relying on the local scene and it all starts to fall apart. And that's when I think the drinking um, tends to overcome him in the later stages. Um, so also I think we have to remember that his, his, his gift, he still needs to practice a lot, a lot, all the time, eight hours. It's a very isolating sort of career to have. Um, for a soloist, when you go in and play with a, an orchestra, the orchestra members all know each other. Sometimes you're the gun for hire that comes in and out. Uh, I remember spending some time... Um, backstage with Jason Gillam, another amazing Australian pianist, um, when he was performing Beethoven with the SSO. Uh, and he was alone backstage after it had finished because they were going on to perform um, something else without him. And I thought, my goodness, this is so, so, such a lonely profession in a way. Um, so you, you have all those elements. And then you've got this man who um, started life as a gifted child who emotionally, I think, was not very mature when it came to um, relationships. So he had friends, but I'm talking about love relationships. Those sort of things come to him later in life. So um, this is where you, you bring in the issues of the hot housing and um, being singularly focused on one thing. You know, how does that make a well-rounded individual? So that becomes even more complex. So it was a really heavy job trying to work out those threads for the film to be fair to Jeffrey and also to be fair to those that were being blamed for the demise of his career. Yeah, and it's interesting that um, he became really quite well known in China and he went to China so many times um, mm. and even in the early 2000s and that wonderful scene as I said earlier where he's playing he was the first western artist to perform the Yellow River Concerto in China which was at the invitation of the Chinese Ministry of Culture um, mm. which is really impressive and that was in May 2001 and then he was giving recitals in New York um, and still coming back and forth to China and then finally um, also another wonderful performance in January 2003 to celebrate Miriam Hyde's 90th birthday. Yeah. Um, he took part in that ABC broadcast and I, I listened to that, one of the pieces he played and how he explained the pieces and his connection to it and, and to Miriam. And it was just so beautiful um, to hear that and have yeah. access still to those live recordings of his his playing and so you not only do you have those Chandos recordings which are you know pretty perfect um, in the sound quality and then you've got these kind of really beautiful live emotive performances that he um, gave later in life we should note um, when he passed away so people can understand the context I believe it was 2009 yes that's right yeah and yeah. so for people who aren't aware of Jeffrey Tozer, what was life like for his final um, couple of years? Um, it was tough. Um, he didn't have much money. But interestingly, um, 
when later after his died, he was living by himself in a rented house in Melbourne, um, and his friends went through the house and it was just a mess, a, a dreadful situation. He wasn't looking after himself. Um, you know, they'd, they'd discover unopened checks in the in the in envelopes. Um, this is when all the diaries and, and the other letters were discovered as well. Um, so I guess he'd sort of given up in a way. Um, and so the, you know they go in there and and the music uh, the piano um, lid had been closed and there were books on top of it. So he was he stopped playing the piano. Um, there was um, there was electricity, but there was no heating. In cold Melbourne winters, so um, he'd really sort of he was depressed and and very very ill. Um, so it was a, a very sad ending for Jeffrey. He died alone, um, and yet you know it wasn't hard for us to find people that absolutely adored him. Um, he would play um, at people's houses. Rich people would pay him to come and play on their pianos at their dinner parties, and so he's very well known throughout Melbourne. And yet. His life was a very sad ending. Yeah, it's um, great that we do have those recordings that were supported mm-hmm. from the the Keating Fellowships because it seems like it's a way to keep having um, Jeffrey's talent with us forever in a very imperfect circumstance of losing him at age fifty four. Exactly, and I think I was just I was going to mention before that. Um, the Chandos recordings, um, the Metna Concerto Number no. One, which was the first one he recorded after Keating negotiated the deal, um, was nominated for a Grammy. It's a, mm. it's a little known fact, an amazing uh, achievement in the year that Yo Yo Ma won. Um, so he was he was right up there and internationally recognised. I, I think he won Record of the Year, and there was some mm. enormous international accolades. That when Richard Gill, um, the same music educator, he was not aware of these achievements that Jeffrey had um, had got. And when he started listening to the music, he was absolutely blown away. So um, it was like this, it was a very quiet career in, in many ways. Yeah. Um, Janine, it's been fantastic to speak with you. And I think this film will speak for itself um, when people go and see it. So I hope they do. And it is out. It's been out for about a week officially in Melbourne. Um, and it's currently on at cinemas like Cinema Nova, um, the Rivoli in Camberwell, the Sun Theatre in Yarraville. So there are many options for people to yeah. be able to access this film. Um, of course, it was at the Melbourne International Film Festival also a year ago, but it's great to see it getting this wider release through Madman Films as well. So thank you so much, Janine. And congratulations. And I think it's such an enormous contribution that you've made to make Jeffrey and his life and his work really accessible to us. Oh, thanks, Amy. And I really hope that people will will get out and see it because, um, you know, films don't last very long in the cinema and, and we've designed it to be heard and seen in the cinema. So really appreciate your support. Thank you. Yes, I did say off air I watched it about two or three times um, because it's just so compelling. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.